0: Trinity Harbor Church offers the following audio recording as a ministry without charge or legal restriction. We're located in downtown Rockwall, Texas, serving the greater Northeast Dallas area. For more information, visit us online at TrinityHarborChurch.com. Our prayer is that by this message, you will encounter the Lord Jesus Christ. At Trinity Harbor, we've been making our way through Paul's letter to the church in Rome. And uh, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Romans chapter 8, which we begin this morning. And if not, you'll find it printed for you in your worship guide on page 10. If you're able, as you stand with me for the reading of God's Word. We'll read the first 11 verses of chapter 8 of Romans. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. The Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. I was reading an essay on a supermodel recently. And at one point in the essay... It talked about Paris Fashion Week, which is the premier event in all of the fashion industry in the world. To participate as a model in Paris Fashion Week means that you have reached the absolute top of your, of your trade. You are in the inner circle of the inner circles. And at one point, some of the models are sitting and beginning to prepare, and some of the uh, supermodels, what are referred to in the biz, as the huge girls uh, begin to walk in. And this was what the journalists captured but behind the scenes. Shortly after four, the supermodels begin to show up. Kate Moss and Amber Valletta, Naomi Campbell, Shalom. Some rhythm backstage instantly quickens. One well-known model arrives in a long navy blue skirt and turtleneck. Parentheses, fake boobs, a younger girl whispers. and parentheses. In the imaginations of younger models and would-be models, each supermodel seems to stand for something. Linda Evangelista for hard work, Campbell for bad behavior, Moss for imperfect beauty that triumphed. With the minutes of the supermodel's arrival, the room is saturated with camera flashes and television crews, everyone tripping over wires and elbowing one another aside to get at those famous beautiful faces. The media runoff falls to the newer, lesser-known models who are already inured so the giant cameras clocking their every move, often only inches from their faces. Interesting perspective, an interesting glimpse into the light of you know, the top of a particular industry. The most elite of the elite, and you might think that once you actually achieve this place, in whatever industry you might be talking about, there would be a degree of peace. I've made it. I am sitting in the room with the most beautiful women in the world, and I am one of them. I'm gonna put my feet up, and drink something that's non-caloric and enjoy this moment. But that's not what you see here at all. You see judgment, condemnation upon someone who uh, doesn't measure up accordingly. And also, not only is there condemnation, but there's the there's the impetus to um, you know it's not enough to have just made it into the inner circle, right? Something else has to set you apart now. You have to be known as for bad behavior, or for a hard work ethic. Something at the very top, even though you're in the smaller than 1% of the world, still something more must give you identity and make you unique, by which you must continually evaluate yourselves and condemn aspects of yourselves and condemn aspects of other people by which to continue to forge that uniqueness. Does that resonate with you? Do you struggle and realize, even in your own heart, the great temptation that constantly confronts you, either to condemn yourself or to condemn others? Notion to say, oh, it's so easy to point out the flaws of someone else if it demonstrates my own uniqueness, and the unending aspiration to not just be a mom, but to be a mom who provides the best nutrition. Or not just to be someone at work, but to be the guy at work who's the best at this particular task, and therefore suddenly your life has some worth. It has some meaning, rather than simply being lost amongst the crowd. In the human heart, there's this desperate desire to known and to be known, but even more than that, to perform in a way that by our worldly standards would make your life significant or meaningful. What Paul is talking about in Romans eight is the flesh, and the flesh is very much bound up in that. And as he talks about life in the spirit, you have to see that life in the spirit is the um is the offer of freedom from living in the flesh. It is an invitation not to live anymore by a a, a world of performance. It's not. It's an invitation to not see yourself as bound up solely by what you do and always having to earn something. It is an invitation to live out of the love of God. Because something astounding has happened in the resurrection. Has it not? In verse 3 of chapter 8 of Romans, Paul will write, For God is done with the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. He has done something insurmountable, something that changes everything changes everything for Paul. It changes everything for the church in Rome. And as you increasingly understand the resurrection, it will, over your entire lifetime, change everything for you. I mentioned last week that there are two ways of reading Romans 6 through 8. And you might understand the difference by this analogy. Have you ever moved? I'm presuming the vast majority of you have moved. Now, there are two kinds of moves. There's the kind of move that's big and once for all. like You're moving a very long distance, and so you load everything up in a truck or you hire movers, it's a one-time deal, you leave, you don't go back, and you arrive at your new destination. The other kind of move is when you're moving closer to home. Right? And you say, well, I'll just start making trips. And 10 trips become 20 trips, and 20 trips become 30 trips, and you think you're done, and then you're like, oh, I forgot that closet. Or, oh, the garage. Well, let's just leave everything in the garage for the new tenants, because we don't want to make one more trip. These are the two ways of reading Romans 6 through 8. You can either say that Paul is talking about one decisive move, that he's talking about you know, the law shaped Israel, and uh, then Jesus comes, and the resurrection happens, and everything changes dramatically, somewhat once for all. Or you can see it as a series of smaller moves. That Jesus is resurrected, the Spirit is sent out, and then people are moving toward the life in the Spirit. But they are constantly find themselves making trips back to the old house. Visiting the closet of the flesh. Opening the garage of the flesh. I think this latter way is the better way to read Romans 6-8. through 8, But you need to be aware of... There are lots of good theologians on both sides, and it's a it's a hard thing to uh, decide between. But the reason that I go, well, there are a number of reasons that we can't get into. It would be much too long that I go this latter direction. One of them is um, that no one actually experiences, I mean, there is this, if you come to Jesus, and you might have had a very profound and radical transformation. Right? You might have had this terrible life and you meet Jesus, Jesus grabs a hold of you and your life radically changes. Even if that's your story, there is still a degree to, be- to which you are going back to the old house. Even for the most radical of transformations. Right? Moving in from the, the, the law and uh, the, uh, death and the road of Adam to the road of Jesus is never a, it's once for all in terms, um, in terms of a historical perspective. But as we experience and move into it, it's never once for all. It's something that's ongoing. It's a process that we engage in, that we experience. And so this is what we're unpacking in the context of Romans uh, 6 through 8. And finally, Paul, as he begins chapter 8, is going to bring a number of things together. He's going to begin to summarize some of the threads that he's drawn together. So hopefully it gives us an opportunity today to catch our breath. And the way I want to break up the chapter is by first considering the problem that Paul's addressing, and then really understanding. Remember, we've talked for a number of weeks about Paul having two roads or two ways. And to understand Romans 6, you have to understand those two ways. He changes his terminology throughout. We're going to talk about that, but we have to understand, number one, the mind of the flesh, and number two, the mind of the spirit. So that was a lot of words that should have communicated very simply that our first point is the problem. Our second point is the mind of the flesh. And our third point is the mind of the Spirit. All right? So let's proceed. What's the problem? Well, at the end of 7, and if you have your Bible, you can look there at verse 16 and following, Paul has a big dilemma. He expresses it this way. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of death, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin." This is what has led us right up to chapter eight in Romans. Paul says, I've got this great battle going on inside of me. There's part of me that is informed by the Spirit and loves God and loves what God gives. But there's also part of me that is informed by the flesh and it makes me unable to actually do, to carry forward or carry out the things that God prescribes for me. And so I am this man of two minds. I'm, I'm drawn in two directions. And I realize that this isn't good for me, and woe is me, and who will save me from this death? Thanks be to God in Jesus Christ. Well, what happens in Jesus that either remedies or begins to remedy this situation? If you look at at the beginning of 8, Paul, Paul goes through an amazingly rapid explanation. And it's characterized by a lot of words like for and because and in order that, which all are communicating the same idea that Paul is is unfolding this chain reaction. This, What happens in Jesus Christ, this is what happens, and this is why it's happening. And if you just skim it with me, Paul says, there is now no condemnation. Well, why? The law of the Spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. How? Sin is condemned in the flesh of Jesus. For what purpose? The righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in us. Remarkably, and she's—you know—in you, one sense, you would be hard pressed, perhaps, to find a better definition or description of what it means to be unified to Jesus Christ, what it means to be a Christian, than Romans eight one through eleven. It is an astounding, astoundingly succinct definition of what the good news in Jesus Christ is. It would be great verses to have on mind at your hand for whatever um, need might arise, or if you were ever asked to give an answer for the hope that you have. Romans 8, 1 through 3 is a very good place to go. And so Paul is explaining what is going on, and you realize at this point, uh, as he goes into verse 4 and beyond, that there are two ways. Two roads. There's a way that's characterized by, if we, if we lump all of, of Romans 5 to 8 really together, there's a road of Adam, which is a road of law, Mosaic law, which is a road of death. And then there's another road which is characterized by Jesus and the Spirit and life. Now again, what we're saying is this isn't you hop off one highway and get on another one. Right? You're constantly drifting between lanes as you seek to follow Jesus Christ. This is what Paul is holding out and encouraging the Roman church to struggle with. Right? It's a big move or a little move. We're saying it moves back and forth. Of course, we want to be those who walk by the Spirit, right? It's not a very hard choice. If I was to say, option A is Adam, law, death, and option A is Jesus, spirit, life, right? shouldn't take you very long to deliberate between the two, at least from a mental standpoint. But from a life standpoint, from a heart standpoint, you're deliberating all the time. You can't decide. You're running back and forth. And so what does it mean to understand these two options and to really aspire to be a people of the Spirit? Well, first, let's understand them and how they both work. So, number two, the mind of the flesh. In verse 5, Paul says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Now, one of the things that's incredibly important to get in your mind to understand Romans, to understand all of Paul, is to understand that flesh doesn't mean flesh. When Paul uses the word flesh in English, um, in his mindset and in his world, it doesn't mean your skin and bones. It doesn't mean blood and physicality. The flesh is a word he uses to refer to everything that is that has been corrupted and is corruptible. Everything that is frail. Everything that is broken by the dominion of sin and is fading away and ultimately will not be renewed. That's what he means by the flesh. Right? Otherwise, you know, if you were to read it differently, you would get in big trouble if you started to talk about Jesus coming in the likeness of flesh. No, Jesus comes in real physicality. Right? But his likeness with the failing, broken, corruptible world right, is only likeness because he never participates in it. It's important to understand that di- that uh difference um or to understand the word flesh correctly that it is not physical but everything that is broken by sin and the old age that is fading away. So Paul tells us that those who set their minds on the f- things of the flesh which we're now defining as everything that's that's broken by sin and is fading away in his old age, right? If you set your mind on those things, then ultimately you are setting your mind on death. What does that mean? To live according to the flesh is really ultimately to live, as we've um, been saying, in an economic relationship with Jesus. It is to approach God with the sense of, oh, I relate to God being blessed for what I do, being cursed for what I don't do, and so ultimately, I am measuring my life based on performance. It is not a relationship that's bound up or defined by love. It is a relationship that's bound up uh, in very economic terms. Terms. And this is, begins to allude uh, what we talked about from the uh, quote from the model essay. Begin to think, you know, if you're really going to do business with your heart this morning, and that is up to you, it's not something that I can make you do. But when you start to think, do I really live by a mind that is informed by the flesh? Or do I live by a mind that is informed by the Spirit? One of the things you have to think about is how how quickly am I disposed to condemn someone? How quickly am I, am I predisposed to realize some fault in someone and both to look down upon them for that fault and at the same time, to feel better about myself as a result of that fault. That's a life that's lived by performance. It's lived by measurement in relation to other people. It is a life that is set on the things of the flesh and not the things of the spirit. Uh, Ro- Robin Gropp turned me on to a wonderful book by a fantastic author, which is Amy and Isabel by Elizabeth Strout, which I've been picking away at, at an incredibly slow pace. Uh, Jennifer's laughing because I will get in bed and read like one page and then I'll fall asleep. So I will tell you the end of the book two years from now, but right now at the beginning of the book it is describing the relationship between this mother and daughter. Uh, and it's not a healthy relationship. It's a very alienated and frustrated relationship. But there's a telling piece in the midst of the story where the mother uh, is considering praying, frustrated in life, Having been widowed, she, uh, is considering, um, what it would be like to talk to God about the things that are going on in her life. And this is, this is how Strout writes the scene. Um, what's, and this is happening, I think, in the sixties, maybe somewhere around there. So, what's the reader's digest? What the reader's digest said was that if you kept on praying, your ability to pray would improve. But Isabel wondered, the mother, if the Reader's Digest might not have a tendency to make things a bit simple. After all, she tried. She had tried for years to pray, and she would try again right now, lying down on her white bedspread, her skin moist from the shower, closing her eyes, again the low white ceiling above her, to pray for his love. Ask and you shall receive. This was tricky business. You didn't want to ask for the wrong thing, go barking up the wrong tree, You didn't want God to think you were selfish by asking for things the way the Catholics did. Arlene Tucker's husband had gone to Mass specifically to pray for a new car, and to Isabel this was appalling. If Isabel was going to get specific, she wouldn't be so vulgar as to ask for a car. She would pray for a husband or a better daughter. Except she wouldn't, of course. Please, God, send me a husband, or at least a daughter I can stand. No, instead she would lie there on her bedspread and pray only for God's love and guidance, and tried to let him know she was available for these things if he cared to give her a sign. But she felt nothing, only the drops of sweat arriving once more above her lip and beneath her arms in the heat of the small bedroom. She was tired. God was probably tired as well. She sat up and slipped on her bathrobe and went down to the kitchen to eat with her daughter. It was difficult. What a telling description of how one who lives according to the flesh relates to God knowing that she desires God's love, she sits and thinks about the things that she will pray for, but she's unable to actually disclose her heart to God. You see, she realizes she doesn't believe that she's loved for who she is. She won't enter into intimacy with God. Instead, she thinks about the way that she should pray and the things that are right to pray for. And then ultimately dismisses the praying altogether. Why? Because God is probably tired. Maybe it's for you, God has better things to do or more important things to tend to. Or maybe you just need to get a few things in order before God will actually heed what you want to say. And the number of things that we can turn to to dismiss actually engaging relationship with God, actually engaging the experience of His love. Because when we live by the flesh, when we live by law, when we live by um, that old age, we don't really believe that we're loved for who we are. We believe that we're loved for what we do. And so this inhibits Isabel from being honest with God. Well, if our life is, is characterized by performance, if we believe we're loved for what we do, then we ultimately get to a place where we have to say, well, we, we can do it. right?" That's the message of essentially the law. If we just work hard enough and get it down, then ultimately things will go right and God will bless it. This is in our power. And if you get to that place, I'm thinking even subconsciously, that I can do it, I'm responsible to do it, then failure becomes unmanageable, right? If it is dependent on you to be successful in order to have a good and healthy relationship with God, then when you fail in that, the relationship with God becomes impossible, and that's a place where you will be crushed by despair. It robs you of hope because there is nothing to look forward to except your next failure. John Egan, uh, who died in uh, 1987, was... A youth pastor who nobody knew lived in Milwaukee, pretty much obscure, lived a very simple life. He was a a teacher and did youth ministry, and he he poured his life into kids and and, um, uh, devoutly sought to experience more of Christ. And it was only after his death that his journal was, um, people knew of it, but people started looking at it and said, this is amazing. It's 30 years of one man's Very Sincere Walk with God, and it would eventually be published. But this is what the introduction to his journal says. The point of John's journal is that we ourselves are the greatest obstacle to our own nobility of soul, which is what sanctity means. We judge ourselves unworthy servants, and that judgment becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. We deem ourselves too inconsiderable to be used even by a God capable of miracles, with no more than mud and spit. And thus our false humility shackles an otherwise omnipotent God. Do you, see, do you see in Egan's quote, or the introduction actually to his journal, why the road of flesh ultimately simply leads in death? There's no other place that it can go. If I begin to approach God in a relationship of the flesh, which is a relationship of the law, which is measured by performance, and therefore... My relationship with Him is in good standing if I do well, but if I fail, it's not in good standing. And then I'm inevitably going to fail, which means my relationship is not in good standing. It robs me of hope. And then I have to engage something that helps me survive. In the midst of that despair, in the midst of that lack of hope, I say, well, I stop believing that God can do something dramatic. I stop believing that He's really a God of miracles. That was for then, not for now. And he becomes more and more distant. And we engage a a false humility. We judge ourselves unworthy. And it becomes nothing but a cyclical, self-fulfilling prophecy that you do indeed become increasingly worse and despairing. This is the road of the flesh, which is the road of death. Ready for another option? How about the way of the Spirit, the mind of the Spirit? The mind of the Spirit, according to verse 5, set their, those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. You know, I'd like to... I'm going through Romans, there are many times I want to send Paul a note. I wish we could text him. Be like, you know, you're not supposed to use the word in the definition. Right? Anybody knows? You want to know what does it mean to live according to the Spirit? Oh, well, you set your mind on the things of the Spirit. That's not fair. What does that mean? Right, We need a little more unpacking, Paul, and he gives us some, but maybe not as much as we would like. More in coming weeks. Uh, So to understand, though, at the very heart, the most important thing to understand about the mind of the Spirit, you really have to go back to chapter 5 and verse 5, and if you have your Bibles, you can do that, because this is essentially the difference between the old age and the new age, between law, and between life, and between Adam, and between Jesus. What is that difference? It's in five five. Paul writes, And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. What has occurred in the pouring out and reception of the Holy Spirit? What has God done? He has poured out His love upon you. He, is, he has opened the floodgates and has allowed His love to go forth so that you might be redeemed, you might live in a different way, and it is all in the origin of His love to you, His love for you. God's unmerited grace, His kindness to us, His love and compassion changes everything. Right? How is it different then from the law in the flesh? Well, no longer am I living by performance because I'm already loved for who I am it's really remarkable to me you know 10 years in ministry and you you can't you know in seminary they can, you'll have a professor say to you you know a lot of people are going to have their conception of god is going to be shaped by their father or lack of father and i had no idea the depth of the truth of that statement the people who who conceptualize god By virtue of their relationship, humanly speaking, to their father, that that's who God is to them. And those who did not have a father have terrible time. Who is God? How do I relate to Him? He loves me, really? Never known the love of a father, so they can't understand that with great depth. And this is what must be understood because if you're going to move away from a life of performance, the only way you can do that is to really believe, really believe. That you are loved and accepted apart from your performance, and what's amazing is, of course, you know when we think about our own children. For those of you who do have children, right, you you don't love your child based on their performance, and when they fail, you want them to run to you, that you might restore them and help them to work through that, and let them know that it's okay and you're there for them, and all of the resources that you have, you will bring to bear on making them the most competent adult that you can. Right When we think of our own children, that's a no-brainer. But so often when we think of God, that doesn't seem like the guy He is. And yet Paul's saying this is exactly what he's done in, in, in Romans. He's poured out His love for you. He would not reserve anything for you to be redeemed and made whole again. That's the compassion He has for you. And it's only when you understand that that you begin to realize it's okay to fail. It's not unmanageable anymore. You can fail and God can redeem it and you can become, grow through it and become more mature because there is no condemnation and you, the freedom of actually being honest and, and uh, engaging those failures. There's actually uh, the most beautiful and, and touching of scenes in Breaking Bad, right? Did you ever think that sentence would occur? And, uh, so, um, so while Jennifer's away, I spent extra time praying and meditating. In preparation for this morning's sermon and making sure that I finish Breaking Bad. Uh, which is not a, uh, not a light show. So I'm not necessarily recommending it to you. And I'm not going to tell you how it ends. But, toward the end. <laughs> yes. So, Walter White, for those of you who aren't familiar with the show, is a high school chemistry teacher. He's diagnosed with terminal cancer. And he, um, he has nothing to leave his family. He's worried about providing for them. And so he begins to cook meth. And uh, this becomes, grows, and he makes a ton of money and becomes a drug kingpin. And uh, all along, one of the refrains that the show keeps coming back to uh, is Walter White explaining to everyone, particularly his wife, that what he's doing, he's doing for his family. Everything that I am engaged in is for the benefit and provision of my family. So he casts it in a noble light. And it's only toward the end and I'm not going to say anything of how it goes but there's a really touching scene where he's he's talking with his wife and she says I can't I can't bear to hear one more time that this is for me that this is for our family. And he's not headed there and he says no it was all for me. So it was something that I good I was good at and it made me feel strong and powerful and important and significant. And there's this moment of clarity where he's able to, to pull off these shackles and to say, yeah, it was all for me. Now, in real life, not in drama shows, really the only way to do that is to be stuck to Jesus by the Holy Spirit. Because the only way to be free to that degree is to realize that all those things that you need and want to admit have been atoned for. They've been taken care of in the cross. And therefore there is freedom to acknowledge that failure because there is no condemnation for you. You have been loved to the greatest extent possible, redeemed, and so you're free to heal if you actually are willing to walk down that road. So these are the two roads that Paul holds out for us that we constantly struggle with. Again, it's not a once for all. You know, we, we spend a little time in the mind of the flesh and then we realize that that's not very good, hopefully, and, and the Spirit calls us back to be focused on the things of the Spirit and back and forth that we go. But to the degree that we exist and labor at, and believe me, it is hard work. Right? It is nothing that is decided simply by this. It is a work of laboring in prayer and in Bible reading and in going to church and in receiving the sacraments. And these are the ways that God wants you to continually have your mind focused on the Spirit. And in that there is life, but in that too there is hope. There is the redemption of all things. One of the saddest things about the mind that is set on the flesh, there is no hope. You can lie to yourself every which way, and you're just masking the fact that there's no hope. But in life of the Spirit, there is wonderful hope. And it is to that hope that we now turn. Rejoice as we pray right now, as we look to the table. Right? There is no condemnation for you. All things are redeemed, and we, of all people, have the most to look forward to and to hope for. Let us pray. Father, we rejoice in Your kindness to us, in Your gracious love in the outpouring of the Spirit, and knowing that we would never cling to Jesus, You have given us the Spirit for that very purpose. We give You thanks and are humbled to the extent to which You have gone to redeem us. We pray that You would help us to know Your love in a way That transforms our heart. Transform us now by your grace, Father, that we might be made new. For those who have trouble coming to you, for those who, uh, for whatever reason, find it so difficult to understand you as the loving Father that you are, I pray that you would open their eyes now and let them have a taste of your abundant love as they come to the table. And, Father, out of that, I pray that we would increasingly be a people that knows the life of the Spirit and are characterized by hope and by peace and to know at a much deeper level what Jesus means when he says his yoke is, um, is easy to bear, his burden is not heavy. I pray that we would find ourselves there and thank you for your profound, miraculous, and unending grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.